Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for May the 26th, Ascension Thursday, the 40 days after the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday. Today is a special day. It is a day of promises made and promises fulfilled. Jesus had told them that he would be with them, but that he was going to ascend to the Father from whence he came. He came to do the Father's will, that is, to come into the world fully human while retaining full divinity, to preach, teach, to heal, forgive, and to proclaim the reign of God had definitively and absolutely and forever entered God's creation, and that sin and death would not have the last words in our lives and in the meaning and end of history, that the evil one would ultimately be defeated and driven out. And if you read the end of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, you will see that at the end, God wins. And therefore, we are to always be a people of hope, looking to the end, the ultimate end, when God will be all in all, and God will fully reign and rule in God's holy world, and all of the faithful will be gathered up into our true and lasting home, which is heaven. And this morning our reading comes to us and is an account of the Ascension from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And in this dramatic scene, the eleven disciples, they make their way to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had summoned them. And at the sight of him, those who had entertained doubts fell down in homage. There were still those who were in doubt, those who wondered, is this really the Messiah? Now think about that. They have seen Jesus and been with him for three years. They've heard the preaching. They've seen the signs and wonders. They've seen his crucifixion. They've been with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've experienced him for 40 days in the appearances after the resurrection. And yet there were still those in doubt. They couldn't quite still come to that point of believing that Jesus was the one after all of that. And yet at the sight of him, they fell down in homage. They fell down in homage, for Jesus told them, I must go to the Father. Do not be troubled or sad. You would rejoice, because if I go to the Father, I am going to send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to be with you always. I must go to the Father, so that you, in ten days on Pentecost, will receive the Holy Spirit God present within you and among you, 
for all of history and all of your life. And Jesus, his last commission to them is twofold. He says to them, full authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Full authority by the Father has been given to Jesus the Son. First, go and make disciples of all nations. And when they go to make disciples of all nations, and that includes us, the nations are that place where we are in our daily lives, our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of work, our schools, all where we travel each and every day. That is, that is the world for us. And we are to make disciples in our thoughts, our words, our actions, by how we live. By how we live, we invite others to follow Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I can't go around baptizing. You baptize by your presence. You baptize by your words, by your example, by your invitations to come and pray, to come and take part in the Mass, to read the Scriptures. That's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. You're inviting you're introducing them to their Lord and Savior. So each and every one of us through our baptism is called to continue baptizing by our daily lives. Teach them to carry out. That's the second part, to teach them everything I have commanded you. We teach by our example, parents in the home, individuals in their everyday lives by their example. You teach. You either teach for the glory of God or you teach in a way that leads people away from God. But each and every one is called to be a teacher and a baptizer. That's our vocation. That's our call. And Jesus' ascension is not Jesus' abandonment for he will return. And the last words he says is, and know I am with you always until the end of the world. I am with you always. I am within you. This very moment, this very day that you have been given, you are not alone. You do not face whatever you're going to face today, however it unfolds. You're never alone. We may feel alone, we may feel abandoned, but let us pause at those moments and look inward and remember the words of Jesus, I am with you always until the end of the world. Jesus is faithful, faithful to his promises and faithful to each and every one of us. Let us in turn be faithful to our call let us this day be about baptizing and teaching in that part of God's world that has been entrusted to us. As God has been faithful, is faithful, and will always be faithful, may we be faithful 
in our call this day. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Astry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for May the 26th, Ascension Thursday, the 40 days after the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday. Today is a special day. It is a day of promises made and promises fulfilled. Jesus had told them that he would be with them, but that he was going to ascend to the Father from whence he came. He came to do the Father's will, that is, to come into the world fully human while retaining full divinity, to preach, teach, to heal, forgive, and to proclaim the reign of God had definitively and absolutely and forever entered God's creation, and that sin and death would not have the last words in our lives and in the meaning and end of history, that the evil one would ultimately be defeated and driven out. And if you read the end of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, you will see that at the end, God wins. And therefore, we are to always be a people of hope, looking to the end, the ultimate end, when God will be all in all, and God will fully reign and rule in God's holy world, and all of the faithful will be gathered up into our true and lasting home, which is heaven. And this morning our reading comes to us and is an account of the ascension from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And in this dramatic scene, the 11 disciples, they make their way to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had summoned them. And at the sight of him, those who had entertained doubts fell down in homage. There were still those who were in doubt, those who wondered, is this really the Messiah? Now think about that. They have seen Jesus and been with him for three years. They've heard the preaching. They've seen the signs and wonders. They've seen his crucifixion. They've been with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've experienced him for 40 days in the appearances after the resurrection. And yet there were still those in doubt. They couldn't quite still come to that point of believing that Jesus was the one after all of that. And yet at the sight of him, they fell down in homage. They fell down in homage, for Jesus told them, I must go to the Father. Do not be troubled or sad. You would rejoice, because if I go to the Father, I am going to send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to be with you always. I must go to the Father, so that you, in ten days on Pentecost, 
will receive the Holy Spirit, God present within you and among you for all of history and all of your life. And Jesus, his last commission to them is twofold. He says to them, full authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Full authority by the Father has been given to Jesus the Son. First, go and make disciples of all nations. And when they go to make disciples of all nations, and that includes us, the nations are that place where we are in our daily lives, our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of work, our schools, all where we travel each and every day. That is, that is the world for us. And we are to make disciples in our thoughts, our words, our actions, by how we live. By how we live, we invite others to follow Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I can't go around baptizing. You baptize by your presence. You baptize by your words, by your example, by your invitations to come and pray, to come and take part in the Mass, to read the Scriptures. That's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. You're inviting you're introducing them to their Lord and Savior. So each and every one of us through our baptism is called to continue baptizing by our daily lives. Teach them to carry out. That's the second part, to teach them. Everything I have commanded you, we teach by our example, parents in the home, individuals in their everyday lives by their example. You teach. You either teach for the glory of God or you teach in a way that leads people away from God. But each and every one is called to be a teacher and a baptizer. That's our vocation. That's our call. And Jesus' ascension is not Jesus' abandonment for he will return. And the last words he says is, and know I am with you always until the end of the world. I am with you always. I am within you. This very moment, this very day that you have been given, you are not alone. You do not face whatever you're going to face today, however it unfolds. You're never alone. We may feel alone, we may feel abandoned, but let us pause at those moments and look inward and remember the words of Jesus, I am with you always until the end of the world. Jesus is faithful, faithful to his promises and faithful to each and every one of us. Let us in turn be faithful to our call let us this day be about baptizing and teaching in that part of God's world that has been entrusted to us. As God has been faithful, 
is faithful and will always be faithful. May we be faithful in our call this day. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Friday of the sixth week of Easter, May the 27th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 9 through 18. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 9 through 18. We find ourselves today in a bit of a paradox, if not a downright uh, contradiction. We talk a great deal about liberty in our culture and society. In many ways, the United States, our country, was born in the flame of liberty, the desire for liberty that was essential as one of our natural rights given to us by God, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in the Bill of Rights, one of the major rights that we possess, a gift from Almighty God, is that of free speech, the ability to express our ideas, our opinions, our viewpoints without being censored. And yet today we live, as we know, in a censor culture. We have powerful uh, forces in industry, in corporate America, in the Silicon Valley, that spend and have enormous amounts of power, enormous amounts of money, given the fact that so many people today use this so-called social media and platforms and all that's involved with that to communicate today. The traditional forms of communication, print media, the uh, regular forms of getting news through either magazines or through uh, local or national news in which you had a series of outlets, national broadcasting outlets that would, in fact, uh, bring the news to you as it happened or at the five or six o'clock, whatever time it was, and you would turn into the news to find out what specifically was going on in the country and in the world, and you had your own local news. But today, much of that has become captured by ideology, if one's particular viewpoint or one's particular beliefs or values do not square with those in power, one is censored. One is simply eliminated, cut off, and it greatly inhibits the flow of conversation, which is essential to the life of a civil society and to a Republican form of government we the people, and that's all the people, and that democracy demands conversation. It requires it. It's the oxygen, as Thomas Jefferson said. Freedom of the press, freedom of the people. But today, we are so divided and so at odds with one another 
that we pick our favorite channels or our favorite sources of news, and it becomes ideological, one particular viewpoint all the time. If you're conservative, you have your outlets. If you're liberal, you have yours. Uh, if uh, you are uh, a green type, you have yours, and so on and so forth like that. And this has caused much division and strife in our society today. And many who express religious views, especially Christians, uh, there's a great deal of censorship. There's a great deal of simply blocking uh, those from speaking in religious and spiritual terms, which are also part, it is the first of our natural rights that's mentioned in the Bill of Rights, freedom to worship, the freedom to assembly, the freedom to praise God and to petition God as one sees fit. And we see that especially during these past uh, two years, restrictions on religious services and unfortunately many churches going along with this rather than uh, protesting, rather than raising their voices. Uh, and so we have to have that kind of courage uh, that was exhibited uh, by St. Paul in our reading this morning from Acts of the Apostles. When Paul was in Corinth, one night, Paul receives a vision from the Lord. And the Lord says to him, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silenced, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. And you say, Well, Jesus, we are attacked. We are this. You will not be attacked to the point where you will be defeated. We should never, never give in to that kind of silence. We should never stop witnessing, giving our testimonies, and living our commitment to the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ. This is, this is fundamental to who we are as individuals and as a people. Our faith commitment, it's not something that stays locked in our room or in our mind or we do behind closed doors. There is a public dimension, and it's for the public good. Our Christian faith has contributed so much to the welfare and well-being of our society as a free people. The great reform movements that have taken place in our society and around the world throughout history have been results of the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, the person of Christ. And there are many forces today who are at work, inspired by the evil one, to silence us, to stop us from speaking, to just be quiet and move on, instead of standing firm in the Lord. Through our baptism, through our confirmation, through the scriptures, 
with the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, through our daily prayers, we are to be strengthened in the Holy Spirit to with courage and boldness proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Lord. And especially in this, in this time, when it becomes increasingly difficult to do so, there is more of a responsibility on the church as a whole and on each and every one of us in our own lives to not be silent, to not be afraid, but indeed to continue witnessing, witnessing as St. Paul and the apostles do. We have been reading this for many weeks now about their, their courage, their boldness, through the indwelling Holy Spirit that dwells in us through our baptism, through our confirmation, through the graces that God offers us each and every day because the Holy Spirit lives in us as well. And so we must never be silent. We must never hold back because we are called by God to be his presence in that part of the world that God has entrusted to us. So in the midst of our cancer culture, let us not be silent or afraid. Let us open our whole being to the Holy Spirit, whom we are waiting for, as Jesus promised, to come at that new Pentecost. We need a new Pentecost a new rush of the Spirit, a new bursting open of the doors of fear and timidity and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior and the Savior of the world. So let us each day with courage, with boldness in the Holy Spirit, speak the truth in love, witnessing to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We need not fear, for Almighty God is within us and for us, and we shall not fail. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Saturday of the sixth week of Easter, May the 28th. Our reading this morning is a continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 23 through 28. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, verses 23 through 28. And we continue uh, following the uh, missionary and evangelical uh, ministry of St. Paul. Uh, he spends some time in Antioch, and what he's doing there, he begins to once again teach and preach about Jesus, and then he sets out systematically, and he begins traveling throughout the entire uh, Galatian uh, country, and uh, what he is doing is he goes about to reassure his disciples that's an important uh, part of the missionary activity. We don't simply teach and move on and forget about it. 
and then let them kind of go off on their own way. Paul, the good pastor, the good teacher, he's also one who continues to connect with those whom he has introduced to faith about Jesus Christ. So they need to be reassured because remember, they're a very small minority in the midst of a hostile environment. And he goes and he, there's a Jew named Apollos. He's a native of Alexandria. Uh, and he is a very eloquent man. And he arrives at Ephesus. And he is not only eloquent, he's very learned, Apollos. Uh, he's an authority on scripture. And he also instructed uh, people because he himself was instructed in the new way. Remember, before they were Christians, it was the followers of the new way, the new way of the Lord. And Apollos was also a very fine person because he's full of spiritual fervor. Uh, he's a true believer. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, although he only had received the baptism of repentance from John the Baptist. He had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it didn't stop him, and it didn't stop the Spirit from working in him and through him. And he is very filled with fervor, and he goes about preaching and teaching fearlessly in the synagogue. And there are two women, Priscilla and Aquila, who heard him. And they were so impressed and taken back by his eloquence, his learning, and his commitment, his fervor. So they took him home and explained to him God's new way in greater detail. Now, we just say, okay, but at that time, that was quite shocking. You have these two women, Priscilla and Aquila. They are in the role of teachers. They are teaching this man of eloquence, of commitment, of learning into the deeper ways of Jesus Christ because Apollos has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's been baptized. He's been baptized with water. But there is one who will come after John who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is Jesus. And uh, so they take him, they bring him home, and what they do is they begin to uh, see how effective he is in teaching and preaching uh, the people. And so they begin to uh, get the idea that they ought to commend him to St. Paul and to the uh, disciples of Paul. And so when he arrives, he, is, he greatly strengthened those who through God's favor have become believers. He was vigorous in his public defense of Jesus. And he refuted all on the basis of scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So he is what we might call a rising star in the early church. He's a rising star. Remember, he's eloquent, he's learned, and he is a true believer. We're going to see a little later in other parts of the uh, Acts of the Apostles that this also, though, causes a problem because there are people then who became, become attracted to the person of Apollos. And some say, I'm, from, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Paul, I'm for this one, I'm for that one. And that's very dangerous because it divides the community. It's not about Paul, it's not about uh, Apollos, it's not about Barnabas or any of the others. It is about Jesus Christ. We are not, we are not a community that becomes a cult of personality. It's not about us. It's always about Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, the focus, and Jesus is the end. To grow in every day in deeper communion and relationship with Jesus, the study of the scriptures, the receiving of the sacraments, prayer, and encouraging one another the importance of community. Uh, yes, we can study and pray and do all of those things in our room by ourselves. And that private devotion is very good. But we also need to be in community. We are social beings. And we are members of a church, an assembly. The word church comes from the Greek ekklesia, an assembly. Why? because we need the encouragement of others. And they need our encouragement. They need our witness. We need the support of one another. As I indicated from the beginning, Paul sets about so that he can reassure and encourage, encourage the community, encourage the believers to remain firm and strong and faithful. And we certainly need that today because in many ways we find ourselves uh, in a great spiritual warfare in which we often are looked upon with suspicion. We're looked upon as outcast, strange, and uh, some people even think that Christians are dangerous. And so we have to encourage one another. That's why the gathering of the community of faith the gathering of the assembly, so that we can encourage and witness and support one another. We don't go it alone. We don't go do our own thing. It's not our thing. It's God's thing. And God's thing is the person of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son, who lived among us, took upon himself our sins and our guilt, rose from the dead, so that we might be reconciled to God. Only Jesus did that. Only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted we may be, all of which comes from God, we must always remember and never lose focus 
that it is Christ and him crucified and risen. That is the foundation upon which we preach and teach and live each day. But let us be about encouraging one another, supporting one another, and receiving the encouragement and support of others. For we are stronger in the Lord together than we are alone. Let us, as we continue our pilgrim journey here on earth, encourage and support one another in the Lord. And it is always in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for May the 29th, the seventh Sunday of Easter. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And this particular episode, a very short one, but a very powerful one, and one that speaks to us very powerfully today. After the ascension for the past 40 days, Jesus has been taken up into heaven. Uh, The apostles return uh, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where the ascension took place a mere Sabbath journey, and entering the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And Acts of the Apostles lists the name of the names of the apostles, along with some women in their company, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they're all in this upper room after the ascension and after the appearance of Jesus throughout the 40 days uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. And they're in the upper room. And the question is, why why did they go to the upper room? Why, Why are they in this upper room behind locked doors? Because they are afraid of the religious and political authorities who are engaged in a great deal of persecution, trying to eradicate those who are following Christ. And they're growing in numbers. So that poses a real threat to the religious and political establishment. So the first response of those who feel their power threatened is always persecution, elimination, execution. And so they're there out of fear. And that's what fear does. Fear makes us take closed rooms with locked doors. Fear paralyzes. It closes us in on ourselves. It isolates us from others, from the outside world. Physically, we know that when we're afraid, we tend to be uh, more sedentary. We tend to be more cautious, suspicious. We're very hesitant. If you lay aside religion for a moment, 
in the economy such as ours is today in shambles because of so many bad policies that are taking place. There is a, a measure that they take called consumer confidence, and it's very, very low. And with that is less spending. People going on less vacations, people, uh, for example, we're in the Memorial Weekend, less people traveling, less people engaging in picnics and outdoor activities and having friends over and parties, etc. Because the fear is of spending money that things may indeed get even worse. And so therefore we begin to, as we say, tighten our belts. We have less discretionary funding. We may even be giving to charity that we now cut back on, or we have we have held back altogether because we're afraid of what uh, is next in store. Do we have enough to pay our own bills, much less help others? And so that's what fear does. Fear paralyzes. It restricts us, and it narrows our focus mainly to ourselves, and with good reason, and with good reason. But Acts of the Apostles also tells us that they were there in the upper room and they devoted themselves to constant prayer. Devoted, they devoted themselves to constant prayer. That is, their response to fear was prayer. And they were waiting because Jesus had told them he would be coming again. And he does through the sending of the Holy Spirit. This time next week, next Sunday, is Pentecost Sunday, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. The doors of fear are burst open. There's a gush of wind. There is the setting upon the apostles and all in the upper room with tongues of fire. And Peter will go out and preach the first great Pentecost sermon. But right now, they're in fear. But they turn to the Lord in prayer. And so this coming week, it's good for us to prepare. To prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Prayer at church, prayer Uh, at the offering of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, prayer with our own scriptures, and prayer with our opening of our whole being so that indeed the Holy Spirit may find a fitting tabernacle. Because that's what each of us are called to be, a fitting tabernacle for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we wait in anxious in anticipation. We're anxious for the coming of the Holy Spirit because we know that whenever Jesus promises something, Jesus is the promise keeper. Jesus does not make empty promises. And he said that you are sorrowful now, but your sorrow will turn to joy 
for you will see him come. And he comes through the Holy Spirit. And he's there with the apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some other women who are there. Well, while they're in that upper room, they're also praying constantly. And that's good for us to remember that Almighty God is but a prayer away and that we need the support and strength of others who may also be fearful and uncertain. What do these times mean? Some may even be persecuted for their beliefs. They may have lost friends. They may have suffered some consequence at work. Uh, Their children may no longer be welcomed the homes of other people where they were once welcomed to play with children. Uh, These are small persecutions, but in many ways they're significant, very significant, because it's the price that we are being asked not uh, to simply complain or to withdraw further into ourselves, but pray. Pray for the strength to endure and also pray for the conversion of those who are engaged in persecutions, those whose hearts and minds are becoming closed and cold to the Holy Spirit. They need our prayers as we need the prayers of one another for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So let us, during this week, devote ourselves to prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, come, and through the indwelling fire of your love, recreate in us hearts renewed, hearts filled with the fire of your love, that we may go forth and witness each day that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior of each and every one of us and of the whole of creation. Come, Holy Spirit, come. May that be our prayer and our focus for this coming week as we prepare ourselves for the breaking open of the doors of fear, the setting us free so that we may go forth and serve as God's faithful witnesses and vessels that Jesus Christ is Lord. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Astry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Monday, May the 30th of the seventh week of Easter. This morning, of course, is Memorial Day, when we pause and lift our minds and hearts in prayer to Almighty God to remember all of those throughout the long history of the American experiment in liberty. For all those men and women who have sacrificed again and again their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor, that we might live free, free as God intended us to live, as one of the natural rights that Almighty God has given us, to live as a free people, 
respecting life in all its forms so that we are able to pursue happiness in this earth and blessedness with Almighty God for all eternity. And so we remember all of those who have died, their families, their loved ones, who have fought in all of the wars, tragic but too often necessary against the forces of evil, totalitarianism, brutality, mass killings, slavery, all of those all of those evils that have plagued human history and will do so until the Lord comes again. And so we remember them in prayer. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Gospel of St. John, chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. And Jesus is, brings uh, to our attention this morning uh, a different kind of deeper and long-lasting battle, long-lasting struggle. It is the struggle against good and evil and the road that each of us play in the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And Jesus this morning asked his disciples and all of us, do you really believe? Do you really believe? Not simply with your lips, not simply with your mind, not simply going through the motions, however faithful you may be. But do we really believe from the very core and center of our being that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and that through his death and resurrection, we have received the grace of reconciliation and the hope of eternal life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you really believe in making those daily commitments, those daily sacrifices, those daily prayers and thanksgivings that Almighty God sends us each and every day. And so Jesus asked the disciples, do you really believe? And he says, an hour is coming, has indeed already come, when you will be scattered and each will go away, leaving me quite alone. Remember, we have spoken many times that the work of the evil one is scattering, dividing, causing dissension, a lack of peace, harmony, balance within God's church and also within God's world. And the hour is coming. Indeed, Jesus is speaking to them right before he is to enter into his passion, his death, and his glorious resurrection. And they have been professing their faith in all of that. And yet Jesus says, the hour is upon us when you will be scattered and each will go his way, for they will leave Jesus alone. 
But Jesus says to them, I can never be alone, for the Father is with me always. Now, Jesus tells this not in condemnation, not in rejection of them, not as a punishment, none of those kinds of things. It is a good dose of Christian realism that it is not enough for us to simply talk our faith. It is not to merely say that we are Christians, to go through all of the external observances, as important as they are, but to really commit our whole being to being a faithful disciple of our Lord and Savior each day in the big things and in the small things all for the greater honor and glory of our Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, I tell you all this, that in me you may find peace, that in Christ you may find peace. Wow. Not punishment, not condemnation, not rejection. But I'm telling you this ahead of time because you will know that in my death and resurrection, there is your peace. There is your ultimate victory. For in Christ, you are more than conquerors. For you have overcome the evil one and the world. No matter what happens to you, no matter what unfolds this day, whatever cross you're asked to carry, whatever burden you're asked to lift, you do not do it alone, but you do it in communion with the one who was crucified, who has risen, and the one who has returned to the Father on Ascension Thursday just last week. And we, pair, we prepare this coming Sunday for the indwelling and coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I tell you this, that this may be your peace, your ultimate peace. Jesus tells them, you will suffer in the world. You will suffer in the world. See, often people think that religion is just pie in the sky when you die. It's a kind of sugar coating. It's an escapism. It's uh, not confronting the real world. No, Jesus is laying the real world out for each Christian. You will suffer in the world. Why? Because the world is opposed to you. Jesus has told them, no need to be surprised if the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before you. And we see more than ever the hatred of the world towards Christians, towards the Christian stand for defense of human life from the moment of conception to the point of natural death. The church as a sign and sacrament of that unity that God intended and the church as a faithful vessel of God's peace offered to all nations, all peoples, each individual. But it is that peace that the world does not want, the world being that reign and rule of the evil one 
who will ultimately be defeated in Christ. But you will suffer. But he ends by saying, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Take courage, take courage. Courage means from the heart, from the center of your being. Do not become despondent or despairing, weary or faint-hearted, because in Christ you share in his conquering of the world. If you truly believe, if you truly pour yourself out every day in sacrifice, you are a conqueror. You are victorious. Where Christ has won the victory, you share in the victory by the way in which you live each and every day. For Jesus overcoming the world is also our sharing in the hope of eternal life with Almighty God. So this day, as we pause to remember all those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, we remember the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice, Jesus on the cross. And in that cross and on that cross and in that glorious Easter, Christ has overcome the world, and so have we. Let us really believe, believe from our hearts that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and let us live victoriously. Every day the good Lord grants us. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Tuesday of the seventh week of Easter, May the 31st. Our reading this morning is a continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verses 17 through 27. Acts 20, 17 through 27. And in this particular uh, selection this morning, it is a looking back and it is also a tone of melancholy, a certain degree of sadness. For St. Paul is now leaving Asia for the last time. He's been through Metellus to Ephesus and all the region of Asia that he has been preaching and teaching in. And he is recounting his hardships and the difficulties that he has faced, the plottings of certain Jews, as he says, and they have treated him rather badly, the religious establishment at the time, who still understands Paul as a threat to the old way, the old law, the old covenant that has now been fulfilled in the person of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he has persevered. He has continued. But now, following in the footsteps of Jesus, he says, I am on my way to Jerusalem. 
and he indicates that he will not set foot again on Asia. He will not return. For in his journey back to Jerusalem, he says, compelled by the Holy Spirit and not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit has been warning me from city to city that chains and hardships await me. In other words, he is now traveling the way of Jesus who had a rendezvous with Jerusalem and his death, his passion, death, and resurrection. And so Paul is now following in the foots of Jesus. He has been told by the Holy Spirit that what is awaiting him is the cross. And indeed, Paul will be executed in due time outside of the city of, of, uh, of Rome because he will be taken away from Jerusalem at a certain point, be brought to Rome and executed outside the city. And there is a church and a uh, place of worship there where it is believed that Paul was beheaded and Paul was buried to this day. It's one of the great shrines and places of worship in the holy city of Rome. And he says, I put no value on my life if only I can finish my race and complete the service to which I have been assigned by the Lord Jesus, bearing witness to the gospel of God's grace. He is well aware uh, the Holy Spirit has not hidden him, hidden from him any of God's plans. He will now enter fully and completely into the passion and death of Christ. He will embrace the cross, that cross first, that cross that Jesus first carried and bore our sins and our guilt. Paul will now share in those sufferings, but he will also share in the glory of Christ's resurrection. But he says, none of that matters, for all of these things are passing. The trials and tribulations, the sufferings, the crosses, all of those have a higher purpose and meaning for St. Paul and for each and every one of us. For we too are called to travel with Paul each and every day of our lives towards our true and lasting home, which is in heaven with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the trials and the sufferings, the crosses, the burdens we're asked to bear, to carry, and to lift up, all of those are sharing in the cross of Christ but it has a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose in our own lives. It is not simply suffering for the sake of suffering. It is not bearing the cross simply for the sake of the cross. For the tomb is not the end, for the tomb will be emptied when God calls all who have been faithful, who have run the race, 
who have stayed faithful to the end. Life on high with Almighty God. He says he only wants to finish the race and complete the service. That's really the goal and the hope of each and every one of us, isn't it? To finish our race, whatever that race is for us. He says, finish my race, the race that has been assigned to him, to go and preach the gospel to all of the known world, to preach and to teach and endure all the sufferings and hardships that that entailed. And so in our own life, to live the gospel, to preach and to live Christ, to teach by our words and by our example, by our prayer and our thoughts, all of that is an offering to Almighty God. All of that is that oneness with Christ. And he said, I know as I speak these words that none among you whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see my face again. He knows that he has a rendezvous with the cross. He is not coming back. He is looking, going forward to where God has called him. Therefore, I solemnly declare this day that I will take the blame for no man's conscience, for I have never shrunk from announcing to you God's designs in its entirety. Paul can look back with a sense of integrity and fidelity. He has been faithful in the most difficult and trying of circumstances, but he has been strengthened in the Holy Spirit throughout. He has been supported, renewed, and strengthened by grace. And so each of us in our own lives, we are asked to carry a cross and lift burdens. We always remember that we do not do it alone or by our own inner resources or strength. We do it in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who strengthens and renews the spirit of encouragement and support each and every day. So in those times when we feel perhaps dispirited, weary and faint-hearted, despondent and despairing, that's the time we open our whole being more and more to the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we will be renewed and strengthened to continue to run our race, your race, my race, so that we too can look back, not in regret or sadness, but in gratitude to Almighty God for the grace that we have finished the race we have done all that the Lord has asked of us and we never shrunk back from announcing God's design in its entirety by the way in which we lived. So while it is a day in a sense of melancholy for St. Paul, it is also a time of great satisfaction and gratitude because he can look back with a deep sense of integrity 
that he did not run away. He did not abandon the call. But when in those times of great difficulty, he turned to the Holy Spirit. So let us today and all the days that the Lord may grant us be one with St. Paul. Let us continue the journey, bear the burdens, carry the cross, always to the glory of God. And there is a great joy in knowing that we have indeed lived with that integrity of the Christian faith, for there is waiting for us life on high with Almighty God. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Wednesday of the seventh week of Easter, June the 1st. In the month of June, the month of June is devoted to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus is on Friday, June the 24th this year. And we devote the whole month of June to the Sacred Heart of Jesus whom we turn to uh, for all of our particular needs and also our gratitude for all that the Sacred Heart uh, has done for us. And so uh, our reading this morning comes to us by way of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verses 28 through 38. Acts 20, 28 through 38. In yesterday's selection, which was also from Acts of the Apostles, we, uh, we read that St. Paul was preparing to leave Ephesus and journey back to Jerusalem, and we talked about the meaning of that. Uh, today, he's now at the, the dockside, and he's preparing to leave Ephesus. The boat is there, and Paul summons all the elders of the church of Ephesus. And these are his departing instructions and words to them as uh, he prepares to board the boat and leave and go to Jerusalem. And again from yesterday, he will never again return because it is in Jerusalem that he will be martyred. And he says to the elders at the church of Ephesus, he says, keep watch over yourselves and over the whole flock the Holy Spirit has given you to guard. They are to be guided by the indwelling Holy Spirit, not by their own uh, whims and fancies, not their own impulses, their own desires, but they are to be led by the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, the spirit of holiness. And the people of Ephesus, the members of the church, they have been entrusted to them by Almighty God. They do not belong to the elders. They ultimately belong to God. And the people have been entrusted to their shepherdship, for Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd, and they are to uh, be a shepherd in communion with Jesus. And Paul says that 
shepherd the church of God, which has been acquired at the price of his own blood, the blood of the cross. I know that when I am gone, savage wolves will come among you who will not spare the flock. Now that imagery goes all the way back to the Gospel of John, doesn't it? Chapter 10, in which Jesus talks about that he is the good shepherd. He knows his flock and his flock knows him. But he also warns them that there are wolves who will come among you in sheep's clothing. They do not care about the sheep. They're hired out for money. They're hired hands and they work for pay. And as soon as the wolf comes, the real wolf, they run away because they do not care for the sheep. They are not, the sheep do not really belong to them or to God. And what happens? They're scattered. They're scattered. They're disunified. And they're easy prey for the ravenous wolf. And so that imagery is used to indicate that there are those who will come for their own purposes, their own designs, their own power, their own money whatever they can get from the sheep, rather than serving, they come to be served. And so he says that from your own number, men will present themselves distorting the truth and leading astray any who follow them. Be on guard, therefore. They will lead them astray. They will form their own little cults, their own little personal groups following them instead of following the Lord, the true shepherd, guided by the Holy Spirit, for they're after their own purposes. And he brings up, and he says that, remember that when I was among you and gave to you the word and taught and preached the word of God, uh, I never, never, took advantage of you. I never took your things, tried to extract from you money or goods and services. Uh, he's, in fact, he says, we worked. We worked so that we didn't impose on you or take advantage of you or have you without so that we had or had more. So evidently, that was a real problem at the Church of Ephesus and throughout religion, those who come, wolves in sheep clothing, and they come to, to be served rather than to serve. And so Paul says, be aware of that because they are going to lead you astray from the truth. And once that happens, you'll be scattered. And then the evil one will come and lead you further away and further away from God. And so he says, be on guard. Always listen. Listen to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's true today. Uh, we hear so many people coming in the name of God, in the name of Christ, preaching this and preaching that. We have to have uh, guidance from the indwelling Holy Spirit through the word of God, 
the study and praying of our scriptures each day, of our Christian faith, the catechism. Have those two books with you, the Bible and the catechism, the catechism of the Christian faith, the catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a magnificent one volume uh, work, and it covers the, the, the whole of the Christian faith, and it's beautifully done. And those two resources we should have with us to guide us, not what somebody says, not what they think or feel, not their viewpoint, but what is the revealed word of God in the Bible and what is the tradition, the Christian Catholic tradition within the church. That is the most important thing. So Paul, being the good shepherd, he warns them about this and he encourages them to stay strong in the faith. And after this discourse, Paul knelt down with all of the elders and they prayed. Always prayer. Always prayer. And as Paul is ready to step onto the boat, the elders began to weep without restraint, throwing their arms around Paul and kissing him, for they were deeply distressed to hear that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him onto the ship, and Paul will return to Jerusalem to show his ultimate love for Jesus Christ and the gift of the gospel. He will shed his own blood as Christ shed his blood on the cross, the supreme act of love. And so we are called to live each day, sacrificing ourselves by walking faithfully in the word of God, being strengthened in the word, filled with the sacraments, the very body and blood of Christ, and all the sacraments that the church offers in our daily prayer, that we remain strong and faithful in walking the way of faith in the midst of many ravaging wolves, many false teachers and prophets that appear. We want to always stay firm in the truth because it is that truth that sets us free free for life in and for Almighty God here on earth and for all eternity. Let us stay firm in the truth that is our salvation, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Astry, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Thursday of the seventh week of Easter, June the 2nd. Our reading this morning is a continuation of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22, verse 30, to chapter 23, verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 22, verse 30, to chapter 23, verses 6 through 11. In this particular passage, once again, St. Paul is this time released from prison and uh, he's taken and brought before the Jews 
uh, in Jerusalem for a uh, hearing before the ruling body of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the kind of Supreme Court that determines whether or not one has broken the law, the law of Moses, the law of the Jewish people. And so they bring Paul downstairs to the uh, courtroom, if you want, or the meeting room. And uh, Paul is aware that the Sadducees and some of the Pharisees are present uh, before the uh, Sanhedrin. And so he gives this particular testimony. He says, I am a Pharisee and was born a Pharisee. I find myself on trial now because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now that notion of the resurrection of the dead causes a great deal of division within the Jewish establishment, the legal and religious establishment itself. For the Sadducees, they maintain that there is no resurrection, there are no angels or spirits, and the Pharisees, they believe in all of these things. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are opposed to each other. Paul appeals to himself because he is a Pharisee. And the Sadducees believe that the Pharisees are deviating from the law of Moses, and they believe in none of those things. When you're dead, you're dead. And they don't believe in angels or spirits or any of that kind of stuff, whereas the Pharisees do. So when Paul says that he is on trial because he believes in the resurrection of the dead, all of a sudden the argument and the conflict shifts from Paul himself to a kind of infighting that takes place. And uh, some of the scribes, that is the learned of the Pharisees, they rose and declare emphatically, we do not find this man guilty of any crime if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him because that's what they believe in. Well, before they can, before the, uh, the scribes can finish saying that, who are also Pharisees, uh, the dispute becomes even more intense. It grows worse. And the commander of the garrison where Paul is being held fears that they will tear Paul to pieces, that they will kill him right there, that is, the Sadducees. He therefore orders his troops to go down and rescue Paul from their midst and take him back to headquarters. Uh, you can see what tremendous division has taken place within the ruling body itself. And so Paul becomes a kind of afterthought. Of course, it will return to him. But the commander, the Roman soldiers who are in charge of everything, <clears throat> they rescue Paul because they don't want him killed under their watch. And so that night, uh, when Paul is by himself back in prison, it's under safeguard, uh, the Lord appeared 
at Paul's side and he says, keep up your courage. Keep up your courage. That is, continue your testimony. Continue your witnessing. Continue the ministry that I gave you to preach the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the Savior. Keep keep faithful to that uh, mission that was given to you on the road to Damascus when I called you by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he was given the mission to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the whole world, to the Jew and Greek alike. And so keep up your courage. And just as you have given testimony to me here in Jerusalem, so you must do so in Rome. You must do so in Rome. Now, is that just another trip and another trial and another venue? No, that is momentous. For Paul will go to Rome, proclaim Jesus Christ, and this time, this time, in the end, he will be martyred outside the gates of Rome and put to death. Uh, So he has a mission that will end in his martyrdom. That will be his ultimate testimony, his ultimate witness, that he has remained faithful. He has always said that he desires to finish the course, to run the race, and to not give up, not to become dispirited, despondent, despairing, faint-hearted, but that with the Holy Spirit, He is strong and will remain courageous in his preaching and his testimony in spite of the opposition of the Roman authorities, in spite of the religious establishment. He must remain faithful to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul Paul can appeal the treatment that he has received in Jerusalem to Rome, Because remember that Paul is also a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he can always appeal to Caesar, which is what he does, because he is a Roman citizen. And the idea that he would be crucified is something totally and completely against the practice of the Romans. A Roman would never put a Roman citizen on a cross. It's too uh, ignominious. It's too scandalous. The worst of Roman citizens would not be executed that way as Jesus was. And so Paul, Paul will appeal to Rome as a citizen. He wants his day before Caesar, as is his right. And so he does make his way to Rome as the Lord has commanded him. And he will continue to to witness. He will continue to give testimony in who Jesus is and his death and resurrection as the salvation and savior of the world. And this will ultimately, again, lead to his execution, his martyrdom outside the city of Rome. And again, that is 
his last great and fulfilling testimony. And so it is with each and every one of us. We may not be and probably will never be hauled before religious courts. We will not have that kind of treatment. But each day we are called to be of courage, keep up your courage in witnessing to the gospel, witnessing to the person of Christ as the Son of God, crucified and risen, and the Lord and Savior of the world. We may suffer our own persecutions, our own martyrdoms, our own being rejected, uh, our own being despised, uh, the object of ridicule and scorn, and perhaps, given the environment and the world today, perhaps even acts of violence against ourselves or against our property, against our loved ones, against our churches. But we must be of courage, for God will never abandon us. We continue to live through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who will tell us what to say, will give us the strength to act faithfully, as Paul did. So on this June the 2nd, Let us take the words of the Lord to St. Paul. Let us take them as said to us, because they are. Keep up your courage. And as in the Holy Spirit, Paul gave testimony in Rome. So we are to continue in courage to give our testimony in that part of the world that God has entrusted to us this day. Let us be of courage, for Jesus Christ has conquered the world. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Friday, June the 3rd, Friday of the seventh week of Easter. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of The Gospel of St. John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. This Friday is also the first Friday of the month of June, and as we mentioned uh, on June the 1st, uh, the month of June is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and today is the first Friday of the month of June. And our reading from the Gospel of St. John is a most appropriate one. This is at the end of the Gospel, and also it is the end of Jesus really being with the disciples. There's no ascension or any of that that takes place uh, in this particular passage. But Jesus has a final word a very important word, uh, with St. Peter. And it is also a word, really, for the church and for all of us as well. Uh, Jesus once again appears to his disciples. And after they had eaten their meal, meals are very important because they're really symbols of the Eucharist or the reality of the Eucharist. 
the gathering of disciples, the sharing of the meal in the very person of Christ as he is in the Eucharist, the real presence of the body and blood of Christ, whole and complete, human and divine in the person of Jesus. And every time we gather as a community to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ in the Eucharist, to share the Eucharist and to be nourished by the Word of God, the Holy Gospel, and the readings, we are once again entering into just this kind of meal, just this kind of communion, oneness with our risen and crucified Lord. And Peter uh, is brought to the side by Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. At which Jesus says, feed my lambs. A second time, he puts the question to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus replied, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he asked him a third time, do you love me? Jesus says to him, uh, Simon says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. The three denials of Simon Peter will become his three affirmations of his love and fidelity to the crucified and risen Lord. And his instructions to Peter are important. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The emphasis there is on the importance that we always remember that the members of the body of Christ, the church on earth, they belong to the Lord. They are the disciples of the Lord who has been given the disciples by the Father. You have given them and they are mine, Jesus tells the Father right before his uh, passion and crucifixion. And it is very important to understand that the church does not own the people. The communion ultimately is between the church, the people of the church, the, the members of the body of Christ. They always belong to God and that those in authority and those entrusted are entrusted with feeding and tending, caring for, protecting, teaching, guiding those entrusted to them. The, those in authority from the Pope on down, they 
do not own the sheep. They are not theirs. They are simply entrusted with them. And their task is to continue the work of Jesus, the good shepherd, who tends and feeds, nourishes, protects, and leads us into the pasture of eternal life. And so it is a trust. It is a stewardship in which those who are entrusted with this ministry, with this continuation of the work of the Lord and Savior, they have a responsibility to see that they faithfully follow the example of the Lord. And then finally, Jesus tells Peter uh, a, a prophecy about his ultimate destiny. He says, I tell you solemnly as a young man, you fashioned your belt and you went about as you pleased. In other words, Peter, when he's young and vigorous and independent, he's pretty much able to do whatever he wants. He is a very strong person physically. He's a fisherman. That's hard, back-breaking work. And yet, uh, he now has a new work, a new work. He is to be fisherman. He's to be a fisherman of people. He is to bring them and gather them to the Lord, not to himself, not a cult of personality, but to himself. And he says, but when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie you fast and carry you off against your will. You will become dependent upon others to dress you. You are growing in age, and you will not be able to do the things you once did. But in that, you will also be one with Christ. For Jesus is taken, not against his will, for he will willfully goes to the cross for our sake. But he has to learn that humility. Peter has to learn that humility that has the earthly powers and abilities, the strength of youth passes into the dependency of old age. There is a humility involved there. And it is a blessing and a grace and a peace to be able to let others care for us uh, we need not rage against it or fight it. But we are grateful to God that we are blessed with those who do that. It also has on a much deeper level, much, much deeper level, that Peter will ultimately be crucified. We talked yesterday about St. Paul will ultimately be led outside of the city of Rome and executed, martyred, so it is with Peter. Peter will suffer crucifixion. But we have that picture of Peter on an inverted cross, an upside-down cross, because Peter is reported to have said that he is not worthy to die on the cross that, in the form that Christ died on. So he dies in an inverted cross, upside-down, but he also carries the cross He's nailed to the cross, 
as is Christ. And so that's how he feeds and nourishes. That's how he tends the sheep. As St. Paul's last preaching and testimony is his martyrdom outside the gates of Rome, so it will be with Peter. His last sermon is the sermon of his death, which is really the beginning of true life. And that is a reminder, both Peter and Paul remind us, that it is in our daily living, our daily dying to ourselves, our daily living for God, of loving and serving others rather than ourselves, that we truly imitate Christ in his public ministry, in the whole of his life, and in his death being poured out on behalf of others. But it is in that dying every day, in pouring ourselves out, that we draw ever closer to the glory of Easter, resurrection and new life, life eternal with the Father and the Son. So let us today feed one another, tend to one another in the way of the Lord, Let us die to ourselves. Let us carry our cross and lift our burdens and unite them with Christ. And in so doing, we are traveling with Jesus on our earthly pilgrimage. And our ultimate destination is life on high with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May it be so with each one of us. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Saturday of the seventh week of Easter, June the 4th. It is the first Saturday of the month, and as is the tradition of the Church, each of the first Saturdays of every month is devoted to the Blessed Mother, to the glory and praise and thanksgiving of Almighty God for the gift of the Blessed Mother the one that Almighty God chose to be the earthly mother of his beloved Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, and verses 30 and 31. Acts 28, 16 through 20, and 30 through 31. In this particular selection, uh, we once again encounter Paul, except this time he has been, as a continuation, taken from Jerusalem, where he was condemned to death by the Jewish authorities. But being a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar, because no Roman citizen could be put to death, either, especially by crucifixion. And so he makes that appeal, and he's taken to Rome. And once he uh, arrives in Rome, he is allowed to uh, be under what we might call today house arrest. He finds lodging on his own, although there is a soldier outside to keep guard over him. Uh, They didn't have electronic monitors 
but what they did have were a number of uh, Roman soldiers because this time, whenever Rome took over a place, and especially in Rome itself, it was filled with Roman soldiers. And after three days there, Paul invites the prominent Jewish community members uh, to come to him, and he recounts to them why he is in Rome and why he is appealing to the emperor uh, for the final disposition of his case. And he tells them that uh, he has done nothing against uh, the Israelites, the ancestor customs, and yet he was handed over in Jerusalem to the Romans as a prisoner. And the Romans, remember who were there governing, found nothing, uh, nothing to charge him with. Uh, they wanted to find him uh, innocent and let him go. But when the Jews objected, <clears throat> that is, the emperor or the uh, governor of Jerusalem was going to uh, turn him over to the Jews to be killed, Paul, a Roman citizen, he appeals to the emperor. And so there he is in Rome. And uh, that's why I, why Paul says, I have asked to speak to you. And I, I am in these chains because I share the hope of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to the Jewish people. And therefore, I am not an enemy, but I am proclaiming the one who has fulfilled all the promises made uh, millennia ago to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to all of the prophets, uh, Jesus Christ. And so for two years, Paul stays in his rented lodging under house arrest, and he welcomes all who came to see him and with full assurance and without any hindrance whatever, he preached the reign of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So while he's there, he's free to preach and to teach about Jesus, what she does, and brings about many converts. It's an important lesson for us, isn't it? That prison walls and chains, even house arrest, does not prevent God's word from being preached and taught. And especially Paul, who has received his commission from Jesus himself on that dramatic road to Damascus when he encounters the Lord. And the Lord gives him his mission to make known his name and to preach and teach throughout all of the known world. And so Paul has remained faithful and even under house arrest and in chains, as he says, he is still doing the commission given to him by our Lord. In our own lives, through our own baptism, we are called to preach, to teach, and to live by our daily lives that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Paul was able to do that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so are we, filled with the Holy Spirit through our baptism and our confirmation. 
for being nourished, receiving the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, through the scriptures, through our prayer, through our being with our Christians in our prayer groups, and in all of the other ways in which, in our own world, that seeks to chain us, that seeks to wall in the word of God. It doesn't want the message of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed and lived. Yet, that is exactly what we are called to do, very much in kinship with St. Paul in our own daily lives, to profess our faith, live our faith, share that faith, and to defend the precious gift of faith. And we do not do it alone or by our own resources. We do it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So St. Paul is really a very powerful disclosure model. He reveals in his own person, in his own life, not merely words and talk, but by his actions, even in chains, even with Roman guards outside, as he is preparing at some point to go before the emperor, Caesar, that he is going to continue the mission of Jesus because he obeys God rather than men. He is free that a way that even transcends walls and chains and guards. And so in our own life, while there may be many obstacles, there may be many difficulties, many reasons we can think of why we should just be silent and really not live our faith. Paul is a powerful example of our vocation as baptized in Christ and all of the gifts of faith that the Lord has poured into our hearts. So let us today be of courage. Let not walls and chains keep us enclosed, keep us silent, but let us in our thoughts, our words, and our actions, in our prayer, in our witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, for in and through the Holy Spirit we may have that courage to witness to that eternal truth that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and the Lord and Savior of the whole world. May we be faithful to that call each day. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is a special edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, June the 5th. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which presents to us for our consideration this morning a number of significant themes on this Pentecost Sunday that are most uh, relevant for us living today in the 21st century. And in this particular passage from Acts of the Apostles, 
we remember that today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 10 days after the ascension. And Jesus has promised back in the garden when he was with the disciples before he entered into his passion, that he would not leave them orphans, that he would send them the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to be with them always and to be with the church. For today, in a real sense, is the birthday of the church, the birthday of the community of faith, the body of Christ on earth, the visible representation of Jesus' abiding presence through the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. And the day of Pentecost came, and it finds the disciples in one place. They're in a uh, room, and the doors are locked for fear of the Jewish authorities who are still uh, breathing murderous threats against all the followers of Christ. They're more determined than ever to put an end to all this Jesus talk of his resurrection, of being alive. And so they are still looking for the followers of Jesus to put them into prison and ultimately to death unless they renounce the name of Jesus. And so into this room of fear behind locked and closed doors, Suddenly, from up in the sky, there came a noise like a strong driving wind, which was heard throughout the house where they were seated. <coughs> Pardon me. This driving wind reminds us, doesn't it, of the opening of Genesis. Right after the Lord, Almighty God, creates, there is a formless void there is no definition, there is no structure, there is no order to creation. The world and the universe is simply there. But the Holy Spirit comes, the strong driving wind comes and begins to bring order out of the chaos. And so on Pentecost, the disciples in their fear uh, Jesus has ascended to the Father. They are in that upper room, locked behind the doors, the doors of fear, uncertainty, chaos inward, and fear outward. And the Holy Spirit comes like a strong driving wind. The doors are flung open, and the Holy Spirit comes, and it, it comes as tongues of fire, which are parted and rest on each of them. The tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit renews with the fire of his love. And into that fear, there is the presence of God who driveth out all fear. For God is perfect love. And as the letter of John tells us, in that love, all fear is driven away. And because of the Holy Spirit, 
we can face today and tomorrow without ultimate fear, without ultimate anxiety, because God is with us and within us. And into that little community of the disciples, along with the Blessed Mother, the Holy Spirit begins the formation of the new creation, the new driving wind, the new fire of love that will become the church, that begins with the church. And in that time, there is a gathering, because it is Pentecost, uh, of nations. Every nation under the heavens is present in Jerusalem at the time for the celebration, uh, not of the Christian Pentecost, but of the Pentecost of the Jewish calendar. And so they hear all of this. They hear this wind. And when the Holy Spirit rests upon the disciples in the upper room, they all began to hear them preaching and proclaiming. The fear has been driven out, and they hear them in their own language, which brings us back again to Genesis, doesn't it? And the Tower of Babel, when the Lord confused their language because of their pride, they would build a tower so high that the earth would never be flooded again. They would not need God. They would be self-sufficient, self-protecting. They could take care of themselves. And so God confuses their language. But now on this Pentecost, the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit, everyone speaks the same language. It is the language of the Holy Spirit because God is a God not of scattering, not of division and of strife. God is the God of unity and of oneness, of community. And in that communio, that community, that oneness that Jesus prayed for the night before he died, that they all may be one, that they are now one in the Holy Spirit. And they recount all of the various nations and peoples that are present in Jerusalem. And yet each hears the speaking of these disciples in his own tongue about the marvels God has accomplished. They're speaking the language of God, the language of unity, the language of oneness. And how we need that today in our world once again, marred by the evil and scars of war. We see it in our own country with the division and the strife and the hatred, the destruction and the death that has taken place intensely over the past two plus years. That's all the work of the evil one. It's not the work of God. The work of God is unity and oneness, speaking the same language, communicating the language of the Holy Spirit, the language of God. And within the disciples themselves, their fear, their anxiety, their uncertainty, their feeling of lostness, alienation, those things are transformed by the fire of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so each of us in our own lives 
We may look at our world, our situation, our very lives this day, and they may appear to be chaotic, disorganized, disordered. We open ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Fill the hearts of your faithful. Rekindle in them the fire of your love and recreate in us hearts renewed, new hearts, new beings, oriented toward God. Because Jesus promised that he would not leave them alone and he will not leave us alone. We are not abandoned. We have within us the living Holy Spirit whom we say in each creed, the Lord and the giver of life. Not only life here on earth, but eternal life. Life with the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit for all eternity. That is our ultimate new creation, the new Genesis. And we shall not be overcome, for Jesus has overcome the world by his death and resurrection. So let us today on this Pentecost open our whole being and pray the Holy Spirit come. Please come into us, come into our world, come into your church, strengthen her and renew her so that she may be a sign of unity in a world that is divided. She may be the fateful vessel of peace in a world that has grown so comfortable with war and division. And heal us as only God can. So this is a day of great, of great rejoicing, great hope, and an openness to receive God's great love, evidenced in his Son, and now the gift of the Holy Spirit. So on this Pentecost, let us rejoice and be glad and be filled with gratitude and go forth, not in fear, but in that indwelling Holy Spirit with the tongues of fire resting on us and within us, that we too may go about proclaiming the marvels God has accomplished in his Son, Jesus Christ, and continues to accomplish in the church and in each and every one of us. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Monday, June the 6th, the Monday after Pentecost Sunday. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. And our reading this morning also comes on the day of June the 6th, which is the beginning of the liberation of Europe from Nazi control during World War II and all of Europe and the landing at Normandy. We remember all of those who once again gave their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor so that we may indeed stand brightly in the flame of liberty and to uh, push out 
that terrible evil that was Nazism. And so many years later, many, many years later, we live in that freedom because of those who made the ultimate sacrifice. So we commend them and their families and loved ones to the Lord, that they may indeed be holding the divine face of God, that we might live free. And one day we too might indeed be in the very presence of the God who is true freedom and lasting freedom, whereby Christ has made us free. Our reading this morning from Galatians follows up on Pentecost, where yesterday we opened our whole being to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, promised by Jesus, sent from the Father to the disciples the night before he entered into his passion, death, and the resurrection, and also the ascension of the Lord. And so today we, we ask ourselves, what are these uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit? What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit that St. Paul talks about in Galatians? Well, he begins by telling us that there is within us a tension, if you want even a spiritual war, between that of the Spirit and that of the flesh. The flesh having to do with our cravings, our passions, and our desires, in which we uh, very often grasp for the immediate, the sensual, and those things that are open to temptation, uh, and they lead us really away from the Lord. It's not the flesh uh, of our humanity. It's the flesh of our passions which work on us, our appetites, which lead us uh, to, to sin, to away from God, because we become so absorbed in them. And we find that, as St. Paul said, that is why you do not do what your will intends. Our will intends to do good. Our will tends that to which is true and good and beautiful. But at the same time, we often feel that struggle. Take something, for example, on just the uh, secular level. We're going to make a resolution that uh, we're going to eat healthy, just for the sake of an example. And we find that with the best of intentions and with our determination and all of those things, we find that very often we lapse, we fall and fail, and we find ourselves going back to old patterns, old ways of eating. Uh, we do not follow the promised uh, couple of walks around the block uh, for exercise that we need, uh, sleeping better and longer and well. And we find that the very things that we want to do, we end up not doing, the things that we ought to do. But we find that there is within us uh, these passions. We uh, make a resolution to be kinder and more understanding, more compassionate and forgiving. And we find that we slip right back into the old patterns of 
perhaps snapping at people flying off the handle, find ourselves being short and curt, and at times very unforgiving even to those within our own families. And at the end of the day, the great temptation is to become despondent and despairing, weary and faint-hearted, huh? And to say, well, I give up. I've tried and it doesn't work. Evidently, I'm too weak. So that's who I am and what I'm about. And so I just kind of go along with it. But St. Paul says that there is a contrasting force. There is something far greater. And it comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says, in contrast, the fruits of the Spirit. And here they are. Love, joy, peace, patient endurance, kindness, generosity, faith, mildness, and chastity. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. We die to that. We don't do it uh, in a kind of magical way. We don't wish it away. We don't even will it away. We do it by surrendering, not the surrender of I give up, but the surrender of opening ourselves and placing our whole being into the hands of Almighty God and through the Holy Spirit each day, drawing closer and closer to the one who is peace, the one who helps us to draw ever closer to God each and every day. And uh, we have been crucified with Christ. We have died to these. Uh, since we live by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's lead. That is, we don't direct the Spirit. We don't tell the Holy Spirit, this is what I want, this is how I want it, this is when I want it. But in that surrender, which is really an openness in faith and trust, and we are attentive and alert to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And in times of temptation, we turn to the Lord, come Holy Spirit, come, and give us the strength, give us the grace that we may indeed turn from this temptation to sin. It is a surrender of trust and of faith. We also do not surrender as simply uh, giving up, but we persevere. Uh, what St. Paul says, patient endurance. Patient endurance. It's very difficult. Very difficult, especially we're so used to in this world today. Everything is fast and quick. It's the microwavable spirituality. Let me just say the prayer, punch up the buttons, and boom, out it comes, and I'm a new person. But we all know it doesn't work that way. It is the long and winding road of our pilgrimage here on earth. But in the Holy Spirit, we reach our destination. We reach that point where, in God's good time, we see God face to face in that world to come, 
where God waits for us and calls us each day. So let us today continue what we prayed for and opened ourselves to yesterday on Pentecost. Let us live by the Spirit. Let us be guided by the Spirit. Let us follow the Spirit who blows where he wills. And let us be filled with love and joy, peace, patient endurance, kindness, generosity, faith, mildness, and chastity. Those are the gifts of the Spirit, and those are the gifts that the Holy Spirit pours into us each and every day. Let us open ourselves to these gifts so that we may truly live free, whereby Christ has made us free. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Tuesday, June the 7th, Tuesday after Pentecost Sunday. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Gospel of St. John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. John 14, 15 through 17. Our reading this morning continues the theme of the promise of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The word paraclete appears only in the Gospel of St. John and in a way also in the first letter of John. The paraclete, the word paraclete or parakletos in Greek <clears throat> is an interesting word in many for many reasons in many levels but it's a word that's very difficult and hard to translate into english there's no easy cross translation uh, the paraclete is never really defined uh, jesus doesn't say this is the paraclete uh, we know the paraclete by its description of its functions, rather than by saying what it is. The paraclete is, in this particular passage that we have from the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he will give another paraclete to be with you always. Another paraclete. Well, the question, of course, is, well, who is the other? Uh, paraclete. The other paraclete is Jesus. Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is sent from the Father through Jesus. But Jesus is the first and the most important one sent from the Father because he is the Son of the Father, the Word made flesh, who will dwell among us. And through his public ministry, through his passion, death, and resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, we have hope of salvation. Jesus took to the cross all of our sins, all of our guilt, and reconciled us with Almighty God forever. And Jesus tells the disciples this morning, he says, if you love me and obey the commandments I give you, 
It's a conditional, isn't it? If you love me. Now this love is the love of a oneness of whole being with the person of Christ. It is not on the level of pure emotion or feeling. It is on uh, the level much deeper. It is the total complete commitment of ourselves to the person of Christ because Christ is totally and completely committed to us. The incarnation, the word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. Jesus, fully divine, the second person of the Trinity, is also fully human, fully committed to our humanity and to each and every one of us in particular. I give you, I ask the Father. So the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father through Jesus And Jesus says, to be with you always, to be with you always. Now, this is the promise that Jesus makes on Holy Thursday and was fulfilled this past Sunday with the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the Spirit will be with you always, not simply with those in the upper room on Pentecost, but within each and every one of us right now, at this very moment of our lives, this day that the Lord has granted us. And the paraclete is the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. And the truth is the recognition and profession that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, sent by the Father for the redemption of the world. That's the truth, not merely on our lips, not merely in our minds, but also from the very depth of our being. It is a truth that we live. This truth is not an intellectual truth or an emotional truth. It is a relational truth, to be in that relation. Think of your deepest relationships, perhaps the marriage to your husband or your wife, the love that you have for your children or for your parents, etc. That is the relationship that we have with Jesus. That's the spirit of truth, that truth that Jesus reveals himself to us. When we truly love someone, in truth, we reveal ourselves to them and they reveal themselves to us. And Jesus says, whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. The world cannot accept the truth. We've seen that throughout the ministry of Jesus, haven't we? The rejection of the world and ultimately the world's statement of crucifixion, of death. But God will not be conquered, for Jesus crucified is also the Jesus risen. 
and ascending back to the Father. The world does not see him. It does not see him or recognize him because it doesn't want to. It is a problem of the will. We know that there are people who simply refuse to see things. No matter what you say, no matter what evidence you show, no matter what example you provide, they simply refuse. That is the hardness of heart that the Bible talks about. But Jesus says, you recognize him because he remains with you and will be within you. Imagine that. The very paraclete, the Holy Spirit from God, sent from the Father through Jesus, is with you always, remains with you, and will be within you, in your very in your very being, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a tabernacle. You are a vessel in which God lives each and every day. In effect, you are never alone. For God is with you and within you, and God is for you each and every day. So no matter what we face today, no matter what crosses or crowns, burdens or blessings, clear skies or cloudy and stormy, we don't face it alone. For God lives within us, always, the promise of Jesus. And Jesus is always faithful to the promise. That's the truth. That's the truth by which we live each day. No matter what's going on around us and uh, oppressing us or washing over us, ultimately, God is within us and for us. So let us live today with the courage and the gratitude to live in the sure knowledge that within each and every one of us lives the very presence, the very being of God. And God has called us to be his tabernacle, to be his vessel in that part of the world that we touch each day. We bear God. We carry and present God, the person of Jesus, to the world that we encounter this day. May we open our whole being each and every day and pray, come Holy Spirit, come, indwell in us and with the fire of your love, renew us and strengthen us. May that be the truth that we live today and all of the days that our good and gracious God grants us. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for June the 8th, the Wednesday after the Feast of Pentecost Sunday. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 22 
through 25. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. In this particular letter, uh, the whole of the letter, was really done as a kind of teaching or a catechetical uh, letter relating to, for the most part, baptism as the initial entrance into the new and eternal covenant, the covenant in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this particular passage goes through quite uh, powerfully and beautifully the old covenant, the covenant with Abraham. And it shows its not its uselessness or its cancellation, but its fulfillment, its fulfillment, its perfection in the eternal new covenant, the covenant in the death and resurrection of Christ. And it focuses on the first of the sacraments of initiation. As you know, there are seven sacraments. And the first three sacraments are called the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. These are foundational sacraments. They lay the foundation upon which the Christian life in its sacramental dimension uh, rests. And the first of these is, of course, the sacrament of baptism. And at this particular time, we have no real record of infant baptism. Uh, we've taken it for granted, but with great historical evidence, so it's not really for granted, that baptism was for adults. That was up until around uh, the maybe 8th, ninth century of the church. And these particular sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and, and uh, Eucharist in the early church were done all on one night at the Easter Vigil as a very powerful and elaborate uh, entrance of those who were to be baptized into the Lord Jesus. And so Hebrews reminds us of our baptism it's the foundational sacrament of our entrance into life with Christ. And in this particular letter, uh, the person who is giving the instruction, if you will, the teaching, says, let us draw near in utter sincerity and absolute confidence. Our hearts sprinkle clean from the evil which lay on our conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. It is the pure water that comes from the life-giving waters of Jesus himself. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman who asked for the waters, and Jesus says that he is the life-giving waters. He is the waters of eternal life, that when one drinks of those waters, they never thirst again. When one is washed in those waters, they are clean. And it is from Jesus' side on the cross 
that the water of salvation will flow, blood and water together. And it is those baptismal waters which wash us clean of original sin and lay the foundation for that new life in Christ. And so uh, our baptism is crucial and important. Later on in the church, of course, we're most familiar today with infant baptism, although at the Easter Vigil, we have uh, adults who enter the church and are baptized and become part of the living body of Christ, the church. And the person giving the instruction says, let us hold unswavingly to our profession, which gives us hope. For he who made the promise deserves our trust. Christ, Christ, those who are born in the waters of blood and water from his side, we have the hope of eternal life, and we can always trust absolutely, completely, without condition, the words of Jesus. And he goes on and he says so something a little further that's very important, especially for us. He says we must consider how to rouse each other to love and good deeds. We should not absent ourselves from the assembly, as some do, but encourage one another and this all the more because you see that the day draws near, and the day is in capital. It is the day of the Lord. <coughs> Pardon me. And so what we see today is the need to not simply <clears throat> remember baptism of years ago, decades ago, whatever, in which we practically, most of us, not all of us, do not remember our baptism. We were just infants. And our parents and godparents stood in for us out of love so that there was no significant part of our life in which we were not members of the body of Christ, a great sign of their love and care for us. But baptism is only the beginning. It's not the beginning and the end. And that's why the one who was teaching in our letter says we must rouse each other to love and good deeds. It is the beginning and foundation because it is out of our baptism that the life of love and charity flow. It is only the beginning because it is now the point where we begin to live that life strengthened in the Eucharist, in the word of God, and in our confirmation, the coming of the Holy Spirit that strengthens us and renews us for greater levels of commitment and responsibility the older we get. The more is asked of us and the more is given us by Almighty God. And we must not absent ourselves from the assembly we must worship within the community. Others need our witness, and we need the witness of others, especially today. We need the support of one another. We need to be part 
and members of that community of faith, our church, our parish, our assembly, where the Lord is celebrated, praised, and offered glory, and above all, with grateful hearts for the great gift that God has given us, life on high with Christ. And it is in that encouragement, that support, that mutual giving and receiving of being strengthened in the faith, that we can live our faith every day. Can you pray in your room? Of course, hopefully you do. Can you read the scriptures by yourself? Yes, again, hopefully you do. But we need it proclaimed and lived in the community of faith. We need to see others, be with others, and be for others as they see and receive our support and know that we are with them physically and spiritually in the one living body of Christ, the church. And we do this all the more, the letter to Hebrews says, for the day draws near. We see the tremendous spiritual struggle that is taking place in our world today, in our society, the violence of the forces of the evil one against life, against the great gift of life. We see the terrible destruction taking place in our world with wars taking place, terrible destruction and suffering and death, scattering and the tremendous pain and suffering caused to families, children, the elderly. That's all an evil. It's not a geopolitical issue. It's, a, it's, much, it's infinitely deeper than that. It is the spiritual warfare in which we find ourselves. So let us walk wet every day in our baptismal waters, the foundation of the Christian life. Let us be nourished in the assembly with the hearing and praying of God's word, the receiving of the body and blood of Christ, and our confirmation, confirming, strengthening in faith, strengthening our commitment in our baptism each and every day. We need that. We need that encouragement and that support. And we need to give that to others so that we form the living body of Christ. So let us today make our commitment, our renewal of our baptism to walk wet in those waters that flow from the side of Jesus and is given the life-giving waters that we may truly live. Each and every day the Lord gives us as faithful disciples of our Lord and Savior. For this is our hope. This is our belief. This is the great love that God has poured into our hearts. May we live faithfully those waters each day. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Thursday, June the 9th, the Thursday after 
the Sunday of Pentecost. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And we have spent this past week, rightfully so, a great deal of time discussing these days after Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the beginning of the church. Yesterday we spoke about baptism as the foundational sacrament, the foundational initiation, engrafting of each and every one of us who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit to the members of the body of Christ, the living members of his church here on earth. And today, the prophet Jeremiah, he begins by saying, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, the house of Israel. The days are coming. Well, the days that were prophesied by Jeremiah are upon us. It is the days of the new covenant. Not the covenant of animal sacrifice, not the covenant of offering of grain and wheat and produce from the earth. It is a new covenant, the one instituted by Christ in his very body and blood, whole and complete in the Eucharist. Jesus is the new covenant, the new covenant who took upon himself all of our sins, our guilt. He took it to the cross, and by his death and his resurrection, we have been reconciled with God. He performed the sacrifice. He freely offered the sacrifice, and he himself is the sacrifice of this new covenant, not only with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it is an eternal universal covenant. All peoples and all nations, each and every one of us, we are called to be part of the new covenant, not the covenant that will have to be repeated again and again and again with some kind of new offering some kind of uh, new liturgy. It is the offering that is once for all in the person of Christ. Jeremiah goes on and he says, it will not be like the covenant I made with the fathers the day I took them by the hand to lead them from the land of Egypt. It's not the old covenant. It's not the liberation from the slavery that the Israelites felt under the hand of the Egyptians. It is not that. It is not the signs and wonders of the parting of the Red Sea, the feeding in the desert, the manna. It's none of those things. It's on a much deeper level. It is the very gift of God himself in the person of Christ. The liberation is not a political or geographical or worldly liberation. It is the liberation from our true enemies, sin and death. 
through Christ, the bondage to sin, the bondage to living under the reign of the evil one, has been ended because in Christ all is made new and we have the hope of eternal life. But this is the covenant, Jeremiah says, quoting the Lord, which I will make. It is a covenant I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is the new covenant that is written within us. It's not an external covenant. It's not simply following rules and regulations. It's not simply a covenant that is external to us, that simply deals with our behavior. It is a covenant that touches the very core of our being so that in Christ we are a new creation. That new covenant that transforms us, elevates us, reconciles us to Almighty God. No other covenant, no other sacrifice was capable of doing that. The first covenant, covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, renewed through history with the Israelites, is a covenant that has been perfected now. It has gone to the next stage by God's infinite grace and mercy and goodness in the sending of his only son. The covenant is the covenant of God among us and within us now in the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you orphans, Jesus says, but I will send you a Holy Spirit, a paraclete, who will be with you and within you, and I will write it upon their hearts. And we are to be God's people. And the one true living God is our God. And that's the covenant, that's the relationship that we have with Almighty God. Not an external relationship, not a relation simply of giving God our behavior. God wants us to be in full communion with him. That is the nature of divine love, a oneness with, a oneness for, and a oneness within. That is what God wants and offers to each and every one of us. He goes on finally and says, no longer will they have need to teach their friends and kinsmen how to know the Lord. All from the least to greatest shall know me, says the Lord, for I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sin no more. In Christ, sin and guilt are taken away. It is now up to us to live each and every day of our lives that communion, that union, with the God who lives within us. That is our daily vocation. That's our daily call. From the time God wakes us up in the morning till if it be God's holy will, we have our last waking moment here on earth as we sleep. 
to begin a new day if God wills it. We offer that as a sacrifice in communion with the God who lives within us. That's the new covenant, that new infinite relationship of love, God's love for us and our returning that love with our whole heart and soul, our mind and our strength. And I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sin no more. In Christ, God the Father does not hold grudges, does not resent, does not seek for vengeance. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And in that mercy and in that forgiveness, we can turn to the Lord, confess our sins and be healed and reconciled. It is up to us, each and every one of us, to turn to the Lord and seek his mercy and his forgiveness. It's offered to us. It's within us. For our part, we must open ourselves to receive that blessed grace. This is the new covenant, and it lives within us through the Holy Spirit. Let us today look inward so that we can live outward the new covenant in Christ and return God's love this day with our whole heart and soul, our mind and our strength. Amen. God bless you. Hello and welcome. My name is Father William Maestri, and this is another edition of Gabriel's Trumpet for Friday, June the 10th, Friday after Pentecost Sunday. Our reading this morning comes to us by way of the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. Luke 10, 21 through verses 24. A predominant theme of the Gospel of St. Luke is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And with that is the related theme of prayer. Jesus is uh, very much a person of prayer. And he always prays to the Father in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is present, of course, at the Incarnation. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Mother will conceive our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, time and again, thanks the Father in the Spirit, for the Father's presence, for God's gifts, graces, and blessings. At the baptism of the Lord, the Spirit descends like a dove, uh, and the uh, great scene of the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, the voice from heaven comes, and the Spirit is present, and Jesus' face is as white as uh, driven snow, and is so radiant and bright with light, the light of life, that uh, it overshadows everything. And so this morning, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He rejoices in the Spirit. 
And that's very important because the presence of the Holy Spirit is that of the divine joy, the very presence of Almighty God in, within us and in our lives. And we should pray when we do pray for that rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit within us teaches us how to pray, opens our whole being to prayer. For prayer is the presentation of ourself before God as we are, without cosmetics, without rationalizations or justifications, but as we are, both in our virtues and in our vices, in our sins and in our moments when we cooperate with grace. We come to our Lord as we are. But in the Holy Spirit, we do not have to remain and are not called to remain as we are. We come as we are, but not to stay as we are. For the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, is the spirit which transforms and changes our inward being so that more and more we become configured in communion with the person of Christ to the glory of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity. And Jesus prays, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden from the learned and the clever, you have revealed to the merest children. Now that's a very powerful statement. Jesus begins the prayer directing it to the Father. And you have hidden from the learned and the clever. That is the worldly wise, those who are filled with their own intelligence, their own wisdom, their own ability to figure things out. And yet, he says, that has been hidden because their, their pride of their own intelligence, their own arrogance of what they know, hinders being open to and receiving the supreme wisdom, the divine wisdom of Almighty God that is present in the person of Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God in the flesh, the embodiment of God's knowledge and of truth, which leads to wisdom. They are learned and clever. They know what they know, but they are not really open to receive what the Lord has given. You have revealed it to the merest children. This notion of merest children is not chronological. It's not in terms of actual physical age, 10, 12, 4, 5, etc. It is the childlike trust and faith as a child has towards a parent. The parent feeds and nourishes, says many things to a child and provides for many things that the child may not understand immediately why it is good, why it is necessary to eat the vegetables, why it's necessary to eat the uh, food that's prepared before you have the dessert, 
the child wants the dessert immediately, but the parent teaches, no, we have to have this nourishment first, then you have the dessert, not before. And so that trust, going to school and learning things that may immediately not be evident as important, and yet the student, if the student wishes to learn, must trust and have faith that the teacher is providing them a knowledge that is good for them and that they will need in some point in their life. Learning and truly growing in wisdom requires faith and trust. We must surrender our own arrogance, our own pride, our own knowledge. The great basketball coach John Wooden once said, that the most important things I learned is what I learned after I knew everything. You cannot teach someone who knows everything. You cannot show someone something who has everything, at least they believe they do. They are closed to the truth, but children are receptive and trusting and have faith that those who are providing the nourishment of the body and the soul, or doing it for their good. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you, many prophets and kings wish to see what you see, but did not hear it, did not see it. To hear what you hear, but did not hear it. No, these disciples, not of any great note by the standards of the world, fishermen, laborers, common folk like us, uh, we don't come with all the baggage of my profession, my position, my learning, my knowledge, my status in the world. All of that can be a hindrance to the virtue of humility, for it is in humility that we begin to have wisdom. Because as the great philosopher Socrates uh, advocated, learned ignorance, to know that one knows not, is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you know that you don't know, you can be receptive to learning, to gaining knowledge, and ultimately wisdom. So Jesus says, the learned and the clever, the prophets and the kings, all desired to see what you see and to hear what you hear, but they did not. They did not. It is to those with that humility, that trust, and that faith in the person of Jesus in the Holy Spirit always to the glory of the Father. That is the beginning of true wisdom. And so we rejoice in the Holy Spirit come, create in us that, that heart, that mind, that is open and cleared of all the clutter so that we may receive the very wisdom and the grace that comes from Almighty God. So let us today, in our prayer, rejoice in the Holy Spirit.
Come, Holy Spirit, recreate in us minds and hearts renewed, clean of all of the baggage of the world, our own estimation, that we may receive your divine wisdom, your divine truth, your saving truth in the person of Christ. Let us be as humble, as trusting, and as filled with faith and love as a child so that we may receive what has been hidden from the learned and the clever, the prophets and the kings, but is revealed to us in the person of Christ. May this day we open ourselves to receive the wisdom of Almighty God. God bless you.